If you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 Peter 2. We're going to look at 1 Peter 2, 9 to 10. And today we are starting a seven-week series on, uh, that, we're, that we're entitling The Glimpse of Heaven, A Glimpse of Heaven, which is not about trying to figure out what heaven's going to be like someday in a far-off distant time, but it's more about God's call to us to bring heaven here and now to the people around us. God's call to, to, for us to be a glimpse of heaven, to, for our, our church family, our church community to be a glimpse of heaven for everybody who walks in and also to be a glimpse of heaven for everybody that we interact with in our lives, in every area of our lives. And so uh, we're going to look at some different passages over the next seven weeks. And this morning we're going to look at 1 Peter 2, 9 to 10. Now, Peter was, 1 Peter was written by Peter to Christians who were all over the Roman Empire, who were kind of scattered abroad. And he, he wrote to them, who, the, these Christians were facing persecution, and he wrote to them to encourage them and to remind them of who God called them to be as they lived their lives out amidst all sorts of other people, surrounded by people who didn't know God, who didn't believe in God, who weren't living in response to God. So listen to God's word as I read from 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. As far as this sermon goes, this message over the next 25, 30 minutes, this is the best part of it, okay? So you don't want to miss this part. Listen to God's word. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would open our eyes, that we would see the truth of these words. We pray that you would help us to see Jesus. We pray that you would change our hearts, make us receptive to what you want to teach us. Um, we pray that you would help us to not just look at this and then walk away and forget, that, but that we would look at this and take hold of it and let it continue to work on us. We thank you for your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Pilate crash lands in the ocean in World War I, and he's rescued, and he stumbled upon this island, this secluded island that nobody else knows exists. And this island is filled with female warriors. You know what I'm talking about? Wonder Woman. Right? That's the island that Wonder Woman comes from. Uh, have any of you guys seen the, the recent movie? And so this, this guy, he's, he's rescued and he spends some time on this island and, and then he goes back to civilization and Diana, who becomes Wonder Woman, goes with him back to civilization, to New York City. And uh, as she comes back, you know, she's, she's not dressed like anybody else and she's got a completely different perspective on the world and a totally different attitude. She's walking around carrying weapons and she sticks out like a sore thumb. 
You know, she does not fit in in any way with the people around her. So immediately, he, the first thing he does, he takes her to this place where they, they could find some new clothes for her to wear, some clothes that would help her to fit in and be more fashionable. So they, they, they got her dressed and they, and, and they, they put her in these, these clothes so that she, nobody else would really notice who she really was. You can put that next picture up there, Kathy. And they walk out of the store and you can't really see, she, this is her on the left, but you can see she walks out and she's still holding her sword. And so she might be dressed like everybody else, but still, the sword completely gives her away. But it's not just the sword. Her, her attitude, her, her whole perspective on everything is radically different. And she just cannot blend in. You can take that picture down, Kathy. Just before the verses we read, Peter's referring to those who do not believe, who have rejected Jesus. And then he says at the beginning of verse 9, he says, but you. He says, but you. But you, you are different. You are not going to be like everybody else. You are to stand out from everybody else. You should be incapable, actually, of blending in because you have been made different. You're different, but you. You need to see yourselves differently from those around you. You need to learn to live distinctly from those around you. As I said, you, you should be incapable of blending in. It should be true of all of those who, who have trusted in Jesus and call themselves children of God and know him. We should be incapable of blending in with the, with the people around us, the people in our offices, the people in our schools, the people in our neighborhoods. We should stand out and be incapable of blending in. So what is it that should make us different? What is it that should make us stand out? What are some of the things that should make us distinct and incapable of blending in as we live our lives among people in the world who do not know God, who reject him. Well, the first thing that should make us different, it's simple, it's God. God should make us different. We're different because of him. He has become, for, for Christians, God has become the great fact of our lives the one by whom we figure everything else out, right? Um, the one landmark, the one, one person that, that orients everything else. You know, b- before we had GPSs and, and before we had, uh, had Waze, you know, you guys had used Waze on your phones, before people had maps, people used to get around by looking at landmarks, right? Or they, they would get around, they would figure out where they were by where the sun was in the sky or where the stars were in the sky, Right? Or they would figure out where they were by looking and seeing, you know, this, this big landmark, this big huge mountain in the distance. I could figure out where I was because I know where that is and where I am in relation to that. In today's world, people have all sorts of things that they orient their lives around, that they figure out what is important by, that they figure out how, that they make their decisions because of. I mean, we have many people in our in our area, are so committed to, to their children, right? A lot of people, their children is the thing that they orient their lives around. They make their decisions based on raising their kids. They, make their, they, they decide what is important based on what is best for their kids. And so people use their kids to orient their lives around. Some people look at their careers and they organize their lives around their careers. They, they decide what is best for them based on their careers. Some people, they, you know, they decide not to have a family because they're pursuing their career. They decide not to have children because they're pursuing their career. And, you know, they, they decide how they're going to spend their time because their career is their number one thing in their life, the thing that they orient everything else around. For some of us, it's, it's what people think of us. 
It's what people think of us. We orient our entire lives around hopefully getting people to be impressed with us. So we have this long list of things that we orient our lives around, these landmarks that we orient our lives around. But for the Christian, the one thing that should orient us, the one thing that should give us an understanding of what is really important is God, first and foremost. In this passage, he starts off, but you are what? You're a chosen race. You're a chosen race. Who has chosen you? God has chosen you. He has chosen you. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. A holy nation means that he has set you apart for him, for his purposes. You are a people for his own possession. You belong to him. The fact that you belong to God, the fact that he has chosen you, the fact that he has set you apart, that is what should help you understand what is important in life. As I said, God becomes the great fact of your life. And he informs everything else about your life, about how you, about your marriage, about how you interact with your spouse, about how you raise your kids, about how you do your work, about how you spend your time, about how you, how you, what, your, what your hobbies are and your approach to those things, your entertainment. God impacts everything. And that, if, if that is true of us, that should make us stand out so much around the, in, in the midst of the people around us. That as I go to work, that what I'm thinking first and foremost about is what God thinks of how I'm doing that work, rather than about how I can get ahead or how I can impress my superior, my boss, or about how I can get past somebody else or deal with somebody else. I, I need to be first of all thinking about how God thinks of all that I'm doing. And that goes for everything. There's nothing in life that is irrelevant to him. So God makes us different. And, and the fact that, that we think he is important, ultimate, for everything else. But it's also encouraging because not only does the fact that, that not only does God make us different in our commitments and, and what we think is important, but it also makes us different in how we see ourselves. It makes us different in how we see ourselves. One of the things that I already read in, in verse 9, he says that, that we are a people for his own possession, that, that God has chosen us to belong to him. That he's chosen us to belong to him. You know, there's, there's a lot of different things in this world that, that have value in and of themselves. What are the sort of th- sorts of things that, that give something value? Well, if it's made of something valuable, if something is made of gold, it's valuable, Right? If something is new, it tends to be more valuable than something is, that is old. If something that is rare, it tends to be more valuable than things that are, you know, really common. If, if something is maybe more technologically advanced, it's more valuable. You know, the new iPhone comes out. It's incredibly valuable. I've got to have one. Does anyone remember what was the first iPhone? Was that just the one, the iPhone, whatever? I don't know. But it's, it's have no value now, right? Because it's old. Well, something else that makes things valuable is when somebody important or famous, owns that thing, you know? They're probably people who spend thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars for like the slippers of somebody's famous, right? Just because that famous person wore them. I made a Seinfeld reference last week. I'm going to make another one again this week. You know, George Costanza, you remember anybody see the Seinfeld where George was buying a car? And then he learns that this car that's on this lot is kind of beat up old car. It wasn't anything impressive, but it was owned by the actor John Voight. And then suddenly he's like, I gotta have that car. 
I gotta have this car. It was owned by John Voight. When I was watching, I didn't even know who John Voight was when I was watching that, but John Voight's an actor. Some, probably some of you guys know who he is. But then he finds a pencil in the glove compartment that has teeth marks in it. And he's like, this pencil has John Voight's teeth marks. And he starts like carrying it around with him. And he's like, this thing is like more valuable than anything he owns because it has John Voight's teeth marks in it. Just a regular pencil, right? How much more so do the people of God have value? Do you and I have value because we are owned by God? Because he possesses us? Because we belong to him? We live in a world where value is determined by how good you are, how much you can perform, how much you can produce, how good you are at your job, how successful you are, right? The title that you have. We're surrounded by people in this world that that define value by how great you can appear to be. But the reality is, for those who who know God and have, have come to know Jesus, our value, first and foremost, comes from the fact that we belong to God. And that trumps all of these other things. It doesn't matter if I succeed or fail today. God's love for me is certain. And that is where my value comes from. And again, that, that should make us distinct as people look at us and look at our lives. That we are people who are secure and confident, not because anybody else is impressed with us, but because we belong to God. Right? The second thing that makes us, that should make us stand out, is grace. It's grace. If you look at the second verse here, at verse 10, He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Actually, everything in these these two verses are all allusions to things that are said in the Old Testament. Actually, in in that first, in verse 9, hopefully you noticed it. Logan read a passage earlier in the service from Exodus, and and all of these things in verse 9 are references to things in Exodus and other parts in the Old Testament where this is what God calls his people, the people of Israel that they're a chosen people, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, a treasured possession. But this second verse also makes a reference to the Old Testament as well, to, to the Old Testament book of Hosea. If any of you guys are familiar with the book of Hosea, Hosea was a prophet that spoke on behalf of God to the people of Israel right in, in response to Israel's unfaithfulness, continued unfaithfulness to God. They continually turned away from God and lived for themselves rather than honoring him and trusting him and living for him. It was a story of unfaithfulness after unfaithfulness. And so God took this prophet Hosea and he called him to speak to the people, to rebuke them for their unfaithfulness. And if you know anything about the story of Hosea, God calls him to do something really crazy and radical. And he tells Hosea, to, as a picture of the people's unfaithfulness to God, he tells Hosea to marry a prostitute. He tells him to marry a prostitute and to love her in spite of the fact that she's going to be unfaithful to him. And then he tells them to, to exactly what to name their kids as she gets pregnant and has children. And you know what he tells Hosea to name the children? One of the children is to, to be named not my people. And one of the children is to be named no mercy. That's what the kids' names are supposed to be, not my people and no mercy. 
And God's saying to the people of Israel, because of your unfaithfulness, my judgment is going to come upon you. You deserve, that what you deserve is to be cast out of my presence. You are not my people anymore. I'm not going to show mercy to you. And yet, as you continue to read in Hosea, even in the first three chapters, it's all over the first three chapters, this this theme of not my people and no mercy. He, He reminds them, though, there is hope. Because even in the face of their unfaithfulness, he promises that there will become a time when he will make them his people where they are not his people, where they don't deserve to be his people because of their unfaithfulness, he's going to make them his people. Where they don't deserve his mercy, he is going to pour out his mercy upon them, even in the face of their unfaithfulness. That is what grace is. Grace is when God gives us blessing and love and mercy when what we deserve is the exact opposite. What we deserve is to be cast out of his presence, to be, to be judged to experience his anger. That's what we deserve, and yet he gives us the opposite. That is grace, to give us the opposite of what we deserve, to pour out his mercy upon us, to take us as his own people, and to love us, even though we don't deserve it. In verse 10, in verse 10, Peter's reminding the people, this is how you've become who you are. It's all because of God's grace. You are God's people because he has given you what you don't deserve. You have been unfaithful. That's what the Bible says over and over again, that, that every single person, without exception, has been unfaithful to God. Every single person in this room. We've sinned against him. We've lived for ourselves. We've lived for all sorts of other things. We've, we've made all sorts of other landmarks ultimate in our lives rather than God. And we've served those things rather than him. We've loved those things rather than him. And we deserve his judgment We deserve to be cast out of his presence. And yet what he says, he says, in spite of the fact that you don't deserve my love, I'm going to pour it out upon you and I'm going to make you my people and I'm going to pour my mercy out upon you. And the place where God does that most clearly and perfectly is where? It's at the cross of Jesus Christ. That is why Jesus has come. That is why Jesus has come. He came in order to live a life of perfect faithfulness before God and to die on the cross to pay for our unfaithfulness so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be called God's people, so that we could experience his mercy. It's through Christ that we experience the grace of God, that God pours out his love upon us, that he pours out his blessings upon us. It's because of Jesus that we can know that we are God's possession and we have significance and value no matter what. And this should make us stand out in a radical way in this world. The fact that we are people who know that we've been shaped and made, that our standing in life is purely because of grace, because we live in a world that is absolutely graceless. You ever notice that? We live in a world that is absolutely graceless. We live in a world where people live based on, I've already kind of mentioned it, that, that they treat you based on how you, what, what they think you deserve, Right? I mean, that's how the work, working world works, right? You, you climb the ladder of success based on how much you perform, how much you deserve, usually. Um, you do well in school. You get good grades based on the grades that you deserve. And the grades, you, you know, you, you get on these major tests that you take. You, you're, you're constantly being measured and said, you succeed or you fail, and it's not only in, in school and in, in the workplace, but it's just in regular relationships. In regular relationships, people are constantly living 
in relationships based on, you know, I'm going to treat you based on how you treat me. If you're nice to me, have you ever experienced, have you ever felt that when somebody gives you a gift that you weren't expecting to? You're like, oh, I've got to get them something back. Right? We live in a quid pro quo. We, 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 we give what we get. And if somebody does something that we don't like, we tend to want to pay them back. We do something that they don't, they don't like, or we, 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 we say, you're not my people, and we distance ourselves from them, right? Um, I, I've talked about my tipping habits before. Um, I'm going to share a little bit more, but back, you know, when I was younger and I, and I started paying for myself in restaurants and things like that, I used to, um, I used to you know, figure out, what do I need to tip, you know? What's, what's the, the, the right thing to tip? And I don't know what you guys all know, think is the right thing to tip. I always heard, you know, as I was growing up, there's like 15% is the right thing to tip to people in restaurants or whatever. Um, and so I would always like make sure like, yeah, that I like get it perfectly right. But, but um, if somebody wasn't giving me very good service, it was a no-brainer. I'm not going to give them a good tip. I'm going to give them a smaller tip to make sure that they know that they've failed me. And it gets me out of having to pay more money, too, because I'm a cheapskate. But as I've grown, and as I understand that, that God has made me, he has, he has brought me to himself because of grace, as I begin to understand a little bit more about what grace is, that, that I've experienced, what I've experienced from God is the currency of grace. That's how he has dealt with me, with the currency of grace. That is how I need to deal with everyone else. And so... Again, it's all relative, and I'm cheap, but I try to give good tips to people, you know, beyond what I think I'm supposed to give. And when they fail me, I try harder to still give them a good tip, in spite of the fact that they failed, in spite of the fact that I haven't gotten good, good service, because I believe that I'm a person who should be shaped by grace, and so that's the currency I should use with everyone else not just in restaurants, but in my everyday life, in our, in our everyday lives. That's the currency that, we, that God calls us to use. When somebody does something that I don't like, when somebody says something that's insulting to me, when somebody hurts my feelings, then my calling is to be a person who deals with them with the currency of grace, to love them, to talk well about them, to encourage them in spite of how they've treated me, Right? That should set us apart. People should, as they interact with us, should be like, who is this person? Where are they from? Because we are using the currency of grace in our marriages, with our kids, with our families, with the people that we work with that make us crazy sometimes, with the people that we go to school with, that we sit around the lunch table with, the people that we don't sit around the lunch table with for good reason. We need to be using the currency of grace with everyone. Because grace is what has shaped us. Once we were not a people, but now we are God's people. Once we do, we do not deserve mercy, but he has poured out his mercy upon us in Jesus. And so we need to learn how to live as people that grace just emanates out of us. In all of our conversations, in the things that we say, and the things that we do. And finally, the thing that should shape us, that should mark us as distinct, that should make us stand out from everybody else are our goals. Our goals. The things that we're pursuing in life. 
if any of you guys have Instagram, a lot of times people put hashtag goals under a picture. You know, usually it's a, um, you know, a teenager will put a picture of like a, a couple and it's like hashtag goals. You know, this is what I'm longing for. This is what I wish I had in my life. Or, or somebody with, you know, like a, um, like a really like built physique or something, they'll put, you know, goals. This is what I'm working for. This is what I want. Or a really incredible car, you know, a picture of a Lamborghini or something. They'll put hashtag goals under there. This is what I'm living for. This is what I want. This is what I hope to be a part of my life someday. The question is, what is it that makes up our goals as God's people? And it should radically, it should be radically different from the people around us. I mean, the people around us, their goals in life generally revolve around money, having enough or more so that I can have more. Um, they have, a lot of times, they have to do with with, with raising a family, their kids in this area. Their goals revolve around their kids. Um, there's all sorts of things that people are living for, that people are saying, this is ultimate. This is what I'm living for. And they pursue it. And they pursue it. And they're willing to make all sorts of sacrifices to get those things. The goals of God's people should be radically different. Radically different and should make us stand out. And I, think I see a couple different references to it here. One, in verse 9, he refers to us as a royal priesthood, right? He refers, he says, you are a royal priesthood. Now the priests in the Old Testament were the people who, it was their job to be kind of the mediator between the people of God and God himself, to be the people who represented people to God and God to people. That's what the priest's job was. And so he says, as, as God has called you to himself, as he's chosen you, as you've come to believe in Jesus, one of your number one goals in life is to be a priest, is to, to take God with you wherever you go, to represent God to everyone around you. As you go into your office, as you go into the conference room, you are called to be a priest there, to bring God into that place. It's not that God's not already there, but your job is to represent him there, right? As you go into your high school, as you go into your middle school, your job, your number one goal, God says, is to bring him to your relationships with the kids around you, to your teachers even, to bring him to those places, to, to bring him to your neighborhoods, to your families, God calls us to be a royal priesthood, people who see ourselves as those who represent him, no matter where we go, that we are thinking about how can I bring God here? How can I bring an awareness of who God is to this place? How can I bring his love to the people here? That should be one of our greatest goals. And the other one here is, is, is more explicitly put. It says, you're a people for God's own possession. Why does he call these people, a chosen people, his possession, a holy nation, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The reason God has called you to himself and made you his people is so that you will declare his greatness. So that you will say how great he is. That you will not only tell others how great he is, but you will, you will communicate to everyone how great God is by the way that you live your life. By the choices you make by the sacrifices you're willing to make. As I said before, there's people in our world around us, they make all sorts of sacrifices for their kids or for their careers. We should be known as people who make all sorts of sacrifices, but it's because of how great God is. 
because we have come to see that God is so great, that Jesus is our greatest treasure beyond anything else. Nothing else compares to him. And everything that I have, I need to use to show how great he is. And, and I talked about this a little bit last night, for those of you guys who weren't here, um, about this, this, this message that John Piper, a pastor, gave uh, about 20 years ago. And he talks about these two people who, who retire. And this one couple retires. And their goal in life, as they worked so hard in their lives, was to be able to retire and then take it easy and move down to Florida and buy themselves a nice boat and pick up seashells on the beach. That was their great goal in life. And that's what they were doing. They retired and then they were just living it up, kicking up their feet. And, and as, you, as, you, as you look around this, this world, you know, we have, we have people in our congregation who have retired. We have people who are looking towards retirement. This is often what we think of. This is what people in our world think of. This is the whole purpose of, of working hard all these years so that I can get to a place where I can just think about myself and kick back and relax. I was just watching, Kim sometimes watches these house hunter shows, and I was watching this one with her uh, a couple weeks ago, and it was, this, it was this like beach house hunters, you know, where they, they compare these houses on the beach that they want to buy. And there was this one couple, they, they, they had retired, and they were looking at these, these beach houses down on the coast of Alabama, and they finally decided on this one. It was amazing. It was this incredible house. It had a view of the, of the, of the water in front, a view of the water in back. It had this, this long pier out to this deck with these chairs just sitting out there. It was peaceful. It was calm. It was, it was beautiful. And at the very end, you know, they decided on this house. They go out there, and they sit down, and, and she says to them, this is what we've been working so hard for right here. He's like, yeah. And so there's this one couple, that, that, that's what they, they retired and they go there. There's this other woman who retires and she and her friend, what they do with their retirement is they go to Cameroon in order to, she was a doctor, in order to, to give medical help to people and to tell people about Jesus. That's what she wanted to do with her, her retirement because Jesus was so great that she just wanted to see more of him working and more people responding to him. And they go out there in Cameroon, they're not out there very long, but they drive off a cliff and they die. And he asks the question, which of these pairs of people wasted their lives? Right? That's the question I asked last night. Which of these pairs of people wasted their lives? And for a lot of people in the world, they're like, oh, obviously these people that, that went out to Cameroon and they drove off a cliff, that was a waste. Because you'd be using that time to, 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 to really enjoy life. And they just ended it, doing something crazy. I think that's, that's the sort of people that God calls us all to be, that, that we're doing crazy things to declare how great God is. And not just with our retirement. That's an important question for all of us, yeah, as you're approaching retirement, to think about, how am I going to use retirement? How am I, how's God, you know, what does God call me to do? How can I declare that God is great with the time that I have left and I'm not working 50, 60, 70 hours a week. But that's also an important question for those of us who are younger to answer. You know, we all have these goals about what we want to accomplish with our lives. The greatest goal God calls you to seek out is to declare how awesome he is. What he has done for you, what he can do in the lives of others, what he will do in this world. This is what should make us distinct. This is what should make us different. The fact that God informs everything about who we are. The fact that we are shaped by grace and that is how we live. By grace. And the fact that 
that we are seeking with our, the goals of our life, the great goals of our life, to declare how awesome God is with everything that we are, with all that we have, that we're willing, as we said before, to take risks with the stuff that we own, with our time, with our relationships, so that others would know how incredible he is. And in this, as we, as we live our lives this way, and as we are distinct, this, I think, will begin to make us a glimpse of heaven for the people around us. And as we become a glimpse of heaven, as we, come, as we become a window to the kingdom of God, to, to, the, to the, the values of heaven, to the people around us, I think it has the power to be contagious. It has the power to spread out to the people around us. I'll just finish. There's a, there's a movie called uh, Warm Bodies. I think I've made reference to this before. It's a zombie movie. I don't know if you, if you don't like zombie movies, this movie is still a pretty good movie. I don't like zombie movies generally, but I, I, I watched this one and I actually enjoyed it. It was pretty good. It was, a, it was basically a kind of a, a romance zombie movie. Yeah, it really was. But, uh, so it, it basically, it's, a, it's in a world where the, the world is divided by a big wall and there's all these zombies on one side, there's all these people who are not zombies and contaminated on the other side, but this one girl finds herself stuck on the side with all the zombies. Okay? And through the course of, of you know, the things that happen, this one zombie sees her and for whatever reason, he's taken with her. He likes her. He has compassion on her. And so he doesn't kill her and eat her, okay? And he takes her back to his, where he lives, this abandoned airplane. He, t- he takes her back and he protects her from the other zombies. He, he shelters her from the other zombies. And she goes back and she's terrified. She doesn't know what to think, you know? She just wants to get away. She's constantly afraid of this guy. But as he continues to kind of care for her and provide for her needs, you know, she starts to have compassion on him. She starts to care about him. And there's this point in the movie where you see, um, I haven't seen it in a long time, but there's a point in the movie where he realizes that, realizes that he, she cares about him and it shows like inside his chest, his heart suddenly starts to beat as he realizes her actually loving him. And the cool thing is that as he, he has other zombie friends that he hangs out with and, and so as he hangs out with his other zombie friends, as his, his heart has started to beat His other zombie friends start to see that in him and they start to change too. Their hearts start to beat as well. And the whole world of zombies begins to change because of the compassion and the love of this girl for this one zombie. This is who God calls us to be. We live, in a sense, in a world full of zombies, of people who have no life, who need life desperately and only Jesus' love can give it to them. As we experience that love, we need to be windows of that love to the people around us, right? In the way that we view God, in the way that we, in the things that we're pursuing, in the way that we treat people, that we, that we use the currency of grace just as Jesus has used the currency of grace with us. And I think it's contagious. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to know what you have done for us in raising us to life, in choosing us, in making us your possession, that we belong to you. Help us to know how incredible that is. And and Father, we pray that you would help our hearts to beat with your glory and your grace, that the people in this community, the people in this world would see it and be drawn to it and be changed by it. Father, we thank you for raising us to life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.